0: Welcome to the latest edition of The Third Wheel, our podcast series on all things ESG in Australia. I'm Mel Debenham, a partner in our environment planning and communities group based here in Perth. And I've got a new co-host today. I'm delighted to introduce you to the newest member of the Third Wheel family, Isabella Kelly. Isabella has a raft of ESG experience, including in the very topical area of carbon trading. Um, So I think we'll turn the tables next episode, Bella, um, and get you back as our guest.
1: Thank you, Mel. That sounds great. Um, I've actually been a long-time listener of this podcast, so today is a bit of a celebrity moment for me. So I'm super (laughs) excited to be joining you, um, along with our special guest, Mark Smythe, who's a partner focusing on regulatory disputes, investigations and public law. Welcome, Mark.
2: Thanks very much, and it's uh, great to be back on the podcast again.
1: Fantastic. So thanks for joining us as we um, continue to explore the themes in our latest report on unlocking EST investment in Australia. The report explores the barriers to greater levels of ESG investment, and it surveys more than 100 business leaders on the size and shape of ESG investment challenges and opportunities across M&A, CapEx and financial investment. The findings in that report were supplemented with expert analysis from contributors and observations from some of our partners, including our guest, Mark.
0: Mark, um, you will have seen one of the headline stats in the report was around barriers to ESG investment, and 58% of respondents saw barriers, including legal tax and tenure of investment, as being critical Do you observe difficulties for companies in talking about the long-term benefits they expect to realise through ESG investment or announcing a strong corporate ambition on ESG? Can you talk us through some of those challenges and how businesses are responding?
2: Yeah, sure. It's um, one of the really interesting sort of findings to come out of the report, which is that on the one hand, there's tremendous opportunity and excitement here in terms of investment, in terms of uh, what market expectations are and how prominent uh, ASG is uh, to, to many investors and consumers now. On the other hand, of course, there are these barriers um, that ESG investing is sort of apparently putting up. And so, I think some of the other, we can throw around a few stats, I think, in addition, Mel, uh, coming out of the report, but 75% of respondents said that ESG considerations were being used to assess their investment decisions. Uh, And I think almost half had abandoned in the ESG investment proposals um, over the last couple of years because of these these barriers. And so uh, on, on the one hand, there's really a need to talk about what long-term ESG uh, investment plans you have, what your ESG targets are. That might be anything from climate uh, and net zero plans through to broader social and governance structures that you have in, in, in place. On the other hand, and I think, you know, on that note, we see net zero targets, goals, aspirations and the like really ubiquitous across uh, ASX listed companies now, and, and many of our clients. Yeah, um, on, it's
0: business as usual in terms of scope one, right? Um, yep,
2: that, that's right. Um, one thing that does come out of the report as well is uh, the absence for you know many ASX listed companies of scope three targets a, at the moment, mm-hmm. which is which is another key theme to come out. But yes, that's right. Certainly for scope one and two um net zero targets generally in place so that's been a that is just one example of many different types of ESG commitments that we've seen. So on the one hand um, there are real opportunities in terms of the long term talking about long-term benefits and plans and really setting clear market expectations of what the company is thriving is striving towards. But on the other hand, there are potential risks that we've seen uh, coming to the fore. So uh, I think a sort of key takeaway is that uh, from what we've seen, that these uh, targets and talking about long-term commitments shouldn't just be marketing language or or something that's considered to be so far off in the future that they don't give rise to immediate consequences or that Mm. they aren't really being treated very seriously by investors and consumers as something that is core to um, their decision making. So, uh, I mean, to sort of bring that to life a little bit on on the risk side, um, future statements on ESG ambitions can create risk if the statements aren't carefully framed and in particular, aren't based on reasonable grounds. Uh, So in Australia and also in the US, Uh, In the consumer and retail sectors in particular, we've seen uh, companies that have been the subject to litigation or to regulatory actions on the basis that uh, the claims are said to lack uh, a reasonable foundation, that there's been insufficient due diligence that has fed into the formulation of of the target, and that it's said to be uh, misleading or deceptive on, on that basis. So I think there's really two elements to you know what companies are doing to try and chart this course uh, and and to reach the right outcome. It can't be totally risk free because you know in Australia, as we know, when you're setting ESG um, targets and making a future representation, effectively, you'll bear the onus for um, establishing what the reasonable grounds are. But there's really two elements to it. The first is, I guess a procedural or governance element, and that is thinking really carefully about your internal processes to make sure that you've got really robust governance processes in place that will mean that you have something that is defensible that you can point to as to how how the targets or, or the future statements were formulated really tested by people with the right expertise. And then ultimately there was a level of comfort there in terms of the evidence body that enabled uh, the making of the representation. The second element is, you know, that the process and the governance won't be enough to get you over the line. There really does need to be a proper um, blowtorch applied to the relevant statement to make sure that there's uh, a sufficient evidence body. Which, You know, there's probably not enough case law in Australia yet to provide a firm view on what reasonable grounds means, but really it's about having a sufficient um, body of analysis that has already been done at the date of the representation that allows the company to get comfortable with the particular representation. So everything is going to come down to, you know, what is the nature of that representation and the commitment? How solid is it? What caveats are there? Um, all of that will feed into um, what the market expects in terms of the level of uh, the level of evidence and confidence. But all of these things should really be playing into uh, how ESG uh, future statements and commitments are made. Yeah,
0: and I I guess you know a lot of focus at the moment on what are opportunities, right? We're talking about ESG investment, making commitments, those forward looking statements that you're talking about, Mark. Um, But I guess, you know, very simply doing what you say you will do um, sounds like a pretty good strategy as well moving forward to um, be de-risking some of these commitments and investment um, announcements.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And I think that, that's one area as well that some of the litigation and the regulators have focused on is, you know, are there instances where, you know, based on what's happening publicly, there could be a, a disparity between what has been said uh, mm-hmm. by the company about what it will do and then what's actually happening. Uh, so making sure that you have good systems and processes in place to ensure that you're, you're walking the walk uh, once you've made those announcements.
1: And I think that that liability risk is higher in Australia, isn't it? Because unlike other jurisdictions, we don't have that safe harbour for forward-looking statements. um, Although I think that is a bit of a a space to watch um, because it's one of the things that the government is consulting on as part of its upcoming climate reporting regime. And now Mel, I wanted to turn the spotlight back on you if I can and pick your brain about delays to project approvals in the context of making ESG investment decisions. So in our report, um, regulatory uncertainty was the only barrier to ESG investment that was considered unique to Australia. And there have also been some legal barriers around project approval timelines, which are adding complexity in terms of, you know, risk tolerance of boards in deploying capital to achieve their ESG goals. Could you sort of talk us through um, those challenges and and some of the recent developments that look to deal with that?
0: Thanks, Bella. It's a huge question. Um, I think it's fair to say across the board, there is pressure not just on companies, but there's also pressure on regulators Um, and scrutiny from stakeholders on how regimes, approvals regimes are administered, Um, and as a result, you know, a real cross the T's and dot the I's approach to um, environmental impact assessment and approvals. Um, And this is coming at a time sort of, I won't say post-COVID, but a COVID-impacted time where we've got regulators with Real resourcing constraints and, you know, an ability to get adequately trained and good people doing the job of assessment um, and decision making is is challenging. It's also coming at a time where regulators are considering quite complex. Projects. So, um, you know, if you think about CCS or um, large-scale renewables projects, hydrogen, that kind of thing, there's a lot of novel elements to these developments, um, which also increases the burden during an assessment process. Um, and the last um, element that I would sort of suggest is impactful is this is all in a setting of um a multiplicity of regulatory reform and review. So we've we've touched on, um, you touched on that in terms of the safe harbour, but from a project development perspective, um, from a Commonwealth and state context, there's review and reform uh, across a wide range of legislation. So be that the Commonwealth Environment Legislation, EPBC Act, state environmental regimes, Aboriginal cultural heritage, um, in some states, such as Western Australia, we're also looking at new types of tenure to be able to unlock decarbonisation opportunities. Um, so this, you know, safeguard mechanism, the list goes on. Um, and I, I think that we're at a, a, a bit of a unique juncture, I guess, with all, all of this happening at the same time and perhaps Australia not being a first mover, definitely not a first mover, maybe not a lagger, but we, we haven't had that focus on decarbonisation um, that other jurisdictions may have over a longer period of time. So a perfect storm. Um, What I think that means um, for organisations in thinking about project approvals is that you need to be realistic about the landscape within which you're working. Um, Schedules that might have been um, optimistic or achievable two, three, four years ago just aren't today. Um, So a a bit of realism, um, but also doing what you can to control those processes. And there are things that you can do Um, For example, resourcing up and making sure that you're putting your best foot forwards, really um, pushing um, environmental impact assessment internally before you lodge documents so that you've done a lot of the hard work for regulators, Um, peer review of your impact assessment, things to bolster um, and build confidence and robustness within regulatory submissions, um and trying to work within regulators' timetables. So, you know, giving them the highest quality documentation at a time when you know they'll be able to, they've got the bandwidth or they've um they've scheduled to consider it. Um and also being realistic about back-end risk. So um obviously this is something that Mark will be looking at and thinking about as well, but um, there are always generally opportunities for review, be they merits review or judicial review of approvals and if you're operating in some sectors energy for example at the moment um those are real risks then you need know, to be taking them into account in the you know from a whole project development approvals process perspective that was a lot
2: no i i think Mel, no, as we were sort of chatting about it earlier this morning on a totally unrelated note but um just that level of change that that has happened over the last 12 months both the litigation landscape, but particularly the regulatory landscape at both federal uh, and state and territory level. That level of change is you know, fascinating for me as a litigator and, and the back end, as you mentioned, but also at the front end, I think, and, and thinking about the report and ESG investment, the impact it is having on transactions and in an MA context, you know, how do you price in all of these different risks? Uh, and just given how quickly the landscape is shifting, I think is another really important topic. And I think, as you said, Mel, it's about being realistic and making sure that you thoroughly think about how all of these things have, uh, are continuing to shift.
0: And I'm a glass half full kind of person. Uh, you know, there's a there's a risk that when we're talking about these um, issues and topics, it's all risk, right? But there's a lot of opportunity as well organizations that get this right do have um do have a bit of an edge you know if if you can do your approvals process and shave off a couple of months um, and you know fit within that window of opportunity commercially that that's a great thing there are some excellent examples of projects that have been able to get up approvals um, and into construction quickly uh, I think in part because right at the outset they've had that sort of multi- disciplinary team across it, trying to look at the horizon and um, and do everything within their power to um, to control or influence the the processes that will be applied to that development. So on that note, um, I, I, there's a lot to digest in this in this episode, I think. But thanks, Mark um, and Bella, for your observations. Um, And Bella, look, I'm gonna hand over to you um, to close out the session with an interesting fact from the world of ESG. Thanks, Mel, very
1: happy to do the honours today. So for today's fun fact, we're turning to the island country of Tuvalu, which is situated about halfway between Hawaii and Australia. Now Tuvalu is particularly vulnerable to rising sea levels due to climate change because it rarely exceeds three metres above mean sea level. And sadly, it's actually forecast to be underwater by the end of the century. Now, I suddenly find myself in a generation that is absolutely blown away by new technology. So this next part I think is incredibly forward thinking and super innovative and actually quite out of the box. Um, And that is that Tuvalu has revealed plans to entirely digitise its country and exist completely in the metaverse uh, as rising sea levels threaten its existence. And that would see Tuvalu building a digital version of itself. So it would replicate its islands and its landmarks to preserve its history and culture. Tuvalu's Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Koffer has said that the idea behind the move is to allow the country to continue to function as a state fully even as it became completely submerged. And his announcement came with a very stark warning that if global warming continued unchecked, it won't be the last nation to exist entirely in cyberspace. So that's where we'll leave you today. Thanks very much for having me. And as ever, thank you for listening.
2: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.